0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast, Episode 2. I'm Brian Beasley, and with us is my partner, Dan Albert, the rocket enthusiast. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Brian. Just for some quick background, if you haven't listened to Episode 1, Dan and I own a registered investment advisor firm with our other partner, Tom Stesich. It's called Athena Private Wealth. We help individuals with their financial planning and investing we also consult with CPAs to help them bring more proactive value to their clients. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. Nothing should be considered personalized advice. You should consult your advisor for anything specific to you. So, what are we talking about this morning? Well, we you know, we're just starting out. We're just learning how to do this podcast So, we we wanted to create, you know, the, the purpose of and the mission, I guess, of this podcast is to provide people with timeless information and perspective to help them make better decisions. And uh, in future episodes, we'll have guests and hopefully shine a light on the real professionals that are out there in the financial world—attorneys and mortgage brokers and financial advisors, CPAs, that kind of thing. Um, but in these early episodes, we, you know, this this last first episode, we highlighted just briefly some concepts that we believe are really helpful and timeless to help people make good decisions with their finances we'll of course dig into all of those individually but um, there was a post in a facebook group that we participate in um, a question that was posed that just reminded me of something that it's not that common but it's 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 common enough that it it, it, it kind of inspired me to think about some other things and in, 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 I guess brought back some memories of, of one of my early mentors uh it was actually a client of mine who had done uh directing commercials and uh and he was he had he'd had always come to me and said hey listen you need to go down to like the bare bones basics of explaining some of the terminology that is used in the financial and investment world and and, and i always as a young person i thought you know gosh a lot of that stuff's kind of obvious but over time and in interacting with more people, and this this post on Facebook the other day just kind of hit me between the eyes and, and, and brought that memory back. Is what? I've, What's the post? Well, I'll get to that. Okay. You know, but the, the the fact of the matter is, like, there there really truly seems to be a gap, and so in in between what people know and what we think they know. And it's real common, and we try to say, hey, we're not going to use jargon when talking to people. We try to simplify things down to its bare bones basics. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's some terms that you, you, you need to have some level of understanding of what those terms even mean in order to even have a conversation with yourself, read an article about finance, read a book about finance, or even interact with a CPA or a financial advisor there's some basic things that people need to understand. And I get the sense that people are, there's a, there's some things where people may be a little bit hesitant to even ask for fear of feeling, um, feeling like they're asking a dumb question. And so hopefully with this episode, we can, we can address this. So here's this post that went out and you know, if, if you're out there and you're listening to this and this is, this is you, this is in no way a judgment on you. It's just something that kind of uh, alerted us that there's a gap out there. And the question that we've seen a knowledge gap, a knowledge gap, right? So, the question was should I invest in an index fund or should I invest in a Roth IRA? And so, if you know, we talked about this at length, yes, but there's like this. You know, for the, for those of you, who, you know, a lot, for some of you out there already know where we're going with this, and for others you're, you're waiting for the answer to that question. So the 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 thing we want to do today is is go through and some common terms that are sometimes really really basic. Some of these you may go, holy cow, this is totally obvious. How could someone not know this? And others of others may be listening and saying, hey, thank you and for for defining that because i had absolutely no idea what that meant and uh, we're going to try to go through some of these terms today and rather than i mean you can you can look up the clinical definition of a financial term online anywhere and the challenge there that some people have is that in that definition might be five other terms that you still need to look up as well and what we're going to do today is um, try to keep things from becoming a dictionary list um, but explain some of these terms the way we would explain it to a a lay person who's meeting with us in our in our conference room for the first time or if they have a question we're going to give our answer and uh, for those of you academics out there if we get it a little bit wrong uh, that's okay with us you know feel free to let us know if we get something a little bit wrong But uh, this is our best effort at trying to kind of give people some level of basic understanding about some of these ideas.
1: Okay. So when I was preparing for the meeting, I was talking with my family and asking questions about uh, what terms they've heard in the news or they're talking with with their friends or they overhear. And some of these uh, terms has been, it's been fun talking with them to get their insights, because as we've been putting together this podcast, we're trying to figure out, for me, I'd like to bring value out there and help people to make, like you said earlier, make better decisions. And so in order to help people make better decisions, they need to have a baseline understanding of some of these terms so that you can even have the conversation. So hopefully from, as I'm thinking about this podcast this morning, I'm thinking about trying to provide some kind of baseline understanding and give us some common ground for having a conversation going forward for into future episodes and to even uh, give people some understanding and some basic knowledge to help them get, give them the words so that they can even ask questions. Because sometimes they want to know things, but they may not even know how to ask the question or what to ask so hopefully this is the start of that kind of bigger broader conversation that's certainly not gonna be a full complete conversation in this no, this short
0: no. podcast but I like what you touched on there about people you know being able to ask questions um, it's really common for uh, people when they're interviewing up uh, like us they'll they'll come to us and they'll have a list of questions that they've found on the internet or they've read a book of questions you need to ask and uh, they may have written down the questions, but sometimes uh, they may not be super comfortable with even what those questions even mean. And, and, and understanding some of this terminology really can help ask better questions. So it, this isn't going to be a complete list, like you said. So it's it's just going to be... Um, it's a start. You know, it's a start. And uh, you know people can, of course, ask on social media and find us and say, hey, what about this? What about that? And, and get the conversation rolling. Can ask us on Facebook groups or whatever, but um, can you read the quote back one more time? Yeah. So the original question was, should I invest in an index fund or should I invest in my Roth IRA? Okay.
1: So if we use that as our jumping off point, can we? How about if we start by talking about what's an account and what's an investment? They're two separate things, and so that quote is kind of talking about. Right. two different things.
0: I mean on the, the very basic way to look at things is that there are I'll start with the types of accounts that are out there and I'm not going to go through a whole list, but you think of an account as a basket. And you might have and, and oftentimes these different types of accounts you hear out there and some examples would include 401k, like a retirement plan at work, 403b if you work for a nonprofit. Um IRA. Roth IRA. And then there's taxable investment accounts, like at a brokerage firm, a brokerage account, or an investment account. The terminologies uh, for some things may be used, you know, two mm-hmm. or three words to mean the same thing. But like that taxable investment account, that could So be... let's
1: keep it simple. Let's, okay. So let's start it out with the uh, a simple, in
0: quote, investment account. What's that? Okay. So you have a basket. At a brokerage firm, and mm-hmm. then inside that basket, you can put your money and have that money invested in investments. So the investments are like the things that go into the basket, but the basket itself is like a holding tank for those investments. Um, you know, in, in our example, we have a lot of client accounts at a large brokerage firm, and that firm you could. Inside any of your accounts, any of your accounts, inside your Roth IRA, inside your investment account, whatever you can put those different investments. It could include stocks, bonds, CDs, um, exchange traded funds, index funds, actively managed mutual funds. I mean, there, there's a list a mile long of things that can go into that basket. But the the distinction here is. The types of accounts are just the types of baskets you can hold investments. And then the investments are the things that go in that basket. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting a little you know, halfway clear there. Okay.
1: So if you have a basic investment account that I go and I open up a, an account, an, inv- an account to buy stocks or bonds or whatever mm-hmm. I buy, that thing might be called an investment account, it might be called a brokerage account. Or taxable account, you have all of these terms mm-hmm. that somebody might hear, but they're all basically referring to the same thing. Right. Here, right. Uh, a non-qualified
0: account, an after-tax account. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the 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 person that poses the question um, may be somebody who has typically had all their money at a bank, or they've gone into a bank lobby on a regular basis. And that's where sometimes the confusion can begin. Um, you know, if you go into a bank, typically there'll be some sort of a board, or that will uh, disclose their various rates of interest on their various types of accounts. And a bank is a very different thing from an investment account, um, like a brokerage firm, because at a brokerage firm you can, like you said, you can have stocks, bonds, CDs, money market funds. You know, all kinds of different things can be in there. And in a bank, it's much much simpler. Um, you know, you have your checking account or your savings account, and those have a stated rate of interest that they're paying that day. It's just published. You know what you're going to be getting in advance, what that's going to earn for you. And they even have their their certificates of deposit, those CDs. So you're basically loaning your money to the bank for like three months, six months, a year, whatever, in those CDs. And those, uh, those pay interest, and then they come due, and you get your money back, and you, you get some interest on them. And that interest is... Predetermined, so they can say, "Hey, our CD today. If you invest in a CD with us at the bank, you're going to get, you know, one percent, two percent, three percent, whatever over, you know, the next however many years or months or whatever it is." But you know the the rate in advance, and um, banks also allow people to open IRA accounts and Roth IRA accounts, but in those. Roth and IRA accounts. This is the bank itself, not the like brokerage guy desk over in the corner that's a division of the bank where they do brokerage hmm. this and investing. That's a little more confusing, but we're talking about just a basic basic bank IRA, they'll typically say our IRA pays 1 2 3% for a year, two year, three year, whatever it is. And I think that might be the genesis of where the confusion comes from. Because people are at a bank and they see IRA pays 2%. And they think, oh, that an IRA pays 2%.
1: So an IRA is an investment. Right.
0: And they think of an IRA as an investment. But in actuality, what's going on is they're buying that IRA at the bank. Or they're, they're not buying the IRA. they're in, They're opening an IRA account. And then basically the bank is... Putting a CD in that IRA account, and that's all the that's the way it works. I mean, it's as simple as I can I can explain that. And then they'll go out in the world and they'll see, oh wow, look at that index fund. It's for the last five years, it's done ten percent, for example. Well, wow, that looks better. Maybe I should invest in an index fund. And should I invest in an index fund or a Roth IRA? And, you know, the awesome thing is you can go to a brokerage firm and open up a Roth IRA and then buy an index fund in that so you can get the tax benefits from that roth ira and still own your your more interesting long-term investment yeah and you have that potential there so you know that's that's that question it's just a real basic so how about if
1: um how about if we talk about not um non-qualified accounts and retirement accounts
0: Yeah, those are, that's probably a really good place to start because you hear those terms, qualified, which qualified means in broad terminology, things that are tax sheltered, geared for retirement type of accounts. So that's like your 401k, profit sharing, that kind of thing. And non-qualified, I know the IRS terminology may be a little bit different than this, but in in layman's speak we'll just go ahead and call those those taxable accounts i mean there's gonna so a non-qualified account is a taxable account in 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 broad terms yeah now there's gonna be somebody out there that says yeah but there's such a thing as like a non-qualified retirement plan type sure tax sheltered thing but that's that's a little esoteric for talking to the regular person so in in broad terms if you hear retirement account that's the same thing as qualified account that means it's tax sheltered as an example it's like your your uh, your your retirement plan at work you can put pre-tax dollars in you get some sort of a tax benefit on the way you know along the way or you could call that something that you like a roth bucket inside your 401k where it's after tax dollars going in but you never pay tax again so it's like you're going to pay Pay me now or pay me later. As far as the IRS is concerned, they give you those. But anytime they give you some sort of a tax deferral, tax deduction, or tax free something or other on the way, other way, it's probably a type of account that you'd call a retirement slash qualified
1: account. Okay, so some of those might be an IRA, like you were saying, a Roth IRA, yeah, four hundred one k, four hundred three b, four fifty seven plan, right, pension plan. All there's many different types, and right. the purpose here, we're not. I don't want to talk about each of them
0: individually we yeah. can do that we later can go down that rabbit hole any time but it's the the other thing i guess the other feature besides some level of tax benefit is there's usually some sorts of restrictions on when when you can get the money out of those accounts and how much money you can pull out in advance of that date so like an ira you're not supposed to touch till you're 59 and a half without getting some sort of a penalty And you pull it out early you get taxes and and a 10 percent penalty on top of that so it can be pretty expensive if you touch this money early but those are qualified accounts you can you get some tax benefit but on the other hand you're also saying okay i'm not going to touch this till i'm retired or close to retirement and that's the deal the irs made with the public when they created and authorized these types of of accounts
1: okay so before we move away from the retirement accounts A very common question is, what's the difference between an IRA or a, quote, traditional IRA and a Roth IRA? Let's talk about that before we move on to some other terms.
0: Okay. Um, Well, IRAs came out first. And when they originally came out, the idea was, hey, you can put a few thousand dollars into this account and then you can deduct that $2,000 or $3,000 or now it's like $6,000 from, um, from your income when you file that year's tax return. And then along the way, when your investments inside earned interest, paid dividends, or had some level of capital growth, capital gain along the way where they grew in value, there would be no taxes on any of those returns. And then when you reach retirement and you take money from those iras then you can pull it out and then you pay tax at whatever your income is at retirement and for a lot of people their income at retirement is lower so it ends up being a a good thing from a tax standpoint the roth ira was a kind of turned everything around the opposite and what the roth ira allowed people to do is you could put some money in after taxes so you don't get a deduction when you put money into a roth ira and then the the trade-off or the deal on the other side the the benefit is that not only do you not get taxed along the way but then when you pull money out again in retirement generally you also pay no taxes at all at the federal, you know, at the federal or state level, so that's a huge thing. Depending on how long it's going to be, what your tax brackets are going to be in retirement, that kind of thing, and so it added some complexity to the world when you have those two choices. And there's some potential benefits there, but there's by no means any kind of like the, the question people are going to be asking is, well, should I do a Roth or should I do a traditional IRA if the, if you're even qualified for them. And the true answer is it depends. <laughs> like yeah. is it's it's so disingenuous, it sounds like where you're, you know, every time you ask an advisor a question, they're always gonna say, well, it depends. But honestly, that's the truth. I mean, the the math, the time frame, the 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 math changes based on the time frame that someone's investing. It'll change based on what kind of return they're likely to get over that period of time and the other big factor is what's your tax bracket now versus your tax bracket in retirement and so making that choice requires a a fair amount of assumptions to really know which one's going to benefit you more i mean if you make a high income now and a low income in retirement the traditional may be better because you get that tax deduction up front. Yeah. And and if you make a low return, it really kind of squishes the differential between Roth and regular IRA. There's if, if you're getting a low return, the different the difference isn't gonna be that great. If you get a high return, the difference can potentially be be greater.
1: So there isn't a simple return. answer yeah. like a Roth is always better than a traditional IRA. Yeah,
0: we're always looking to simplify as human beings. It'd be
1: nice gosh. to
0: but the, the, the good news is this, is that you can get, there's all kinds of wonderful, you know, should I do Roth, should I do traditional calculators that are free on the internet that somebody can plug in some of their details. And, uh, and some are better than others, of course. I mean, some are hyper accurate. Uh, the hard one is if somebody, and, and this I'm digressing a little bit, but inside 401k plans right now, a lot of people have a choice between putting their own money from their salary into the regular 401k bucket and they have the same investments available or they have a Roth option inside their 401k. So the Roth option works the same way. It's it's you don't get the deduction. You pay ta- it's after tax it's after-tax money. But then there's no tax on that money when you pull it out down in retirement. And that's pretty cool cuz you can put a lot more than like the normal Roth IRA in the Roth bucket if you have a 401k. But the 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 reason i'm going back to that is that those calculators when you're trying to calculate should i do the roth bucket in my 401k or the traditional bucket in my 401k those calculators need to be up, they're a little bit more complicated than just the roth ira versus traditional ira okay so, so the, the data
1: so entry is a little bit more the extensive. data entry
0: and there's some assumptions that you have to say and it's it's a little bit weird but the, the if you think about it this way, let's say you're, you say, hey, I'm going to max out my my traditional 401k and I'm going to put, um, I'm going to use round numbers here, but somebody's going to put uh, $10,000 into their traditional 401k. Well, if it's traditional 401k, they're not going to pay tax on that $10,000. So their paycheck is going to reflect that it's only like, call it $8,000 less for that year take-home pay even though they put ten thousand into their 401k plan because they're getting some level of a tax deduction okay sure right so here's where it gets weird if you choose the roth bucket for your 401k plan that's after tax money you don't get the deduction so if you put ten thousand dollars in the roth bucket of your 401k Yeah, you get some awesome tax benefits down the line. But your paycheck over the course of the year will be reduced by the full $10,000. Because you didn't get that tax deduction. Back to those calculators. When you're trying to compare apples to apples... The good news is, is that a Roth could potentially be much better in the long run if you put ten thousand into the Roth every year versus ten thousand into the traditional. But what about your take-home pay? That's less every year, so it's nothing. simple. So it, it not, it's just not as simple as we all want it to be. So, yeah. and, and if you're confused, that's that exactly makes our point you need to sit down and go through the details. And that's kind of why we're having these conversations about this terminology because already some people's you know, heads might be swimming going, good Lord in heaven, what, what have I gotten myself into? How do I make these decisions? But um, you just go slow, take it step by step, follow the guidelines, keep asking until you understand, or ask who, not how, and find an expert that can walk you through it.
1: Right, right. Poor you people. said ask who, or um, I keep asking questions. So... I know there are times when I'm talking with clients and uh, during the conversation, when we're in there together, maybe I don't always see that their eyes are glossing over because I'm going down the rabbit hole and talking a lot of financial jargon Mm -hmm. and that we're just losing them. Uh, And sometimes you need to stop me and say, hold on a second, Dan, let me pull you out of the rabbit hole and let me ask you some questions to make sure we're not losing the client along the way.
0: And, and and the the other reason, I mean, the reason we're doing this is because sometimes people are lost and they aren't even raising their hand and saying they're lost. They're just going, "Oh, okay, sure." You know, I like you, I trust you, whatever. But I tell you, that's that's where things go bad. Yeah, is if if you get somebody that's unscrupulous, dishonest, they can take full advantage of that. Right. And that's that's not what we're that's not what a good fiduciary is about.
1: So let me ask one more or let's talk about one more thing with regards to accounts, and then we can move on. Uh. 529 plans 529 plans seem to be very similar to roth iras because they provide tax-free income on the back end and you can put the money in and get these tax benefits that are very similar to Mm -hmm. a roth ira
0: so those are those are for saving for college you you know just similar to similar to those retirement accounts where you get tax benefits if you're going to save for retirement that's the government saying hey you should be saving for retirement. Hey, we're going to make give you a little perk from a tax standpoint, if you will engage in this behavior. The 529 plan is kind of a similar thing, only it's for college savings. So yeah, you can put some money in, you've got some investments inside those plans, and there's some tax benefits involved in those accounts, as long as the money's used to pay for room and board, tuition, books,
1: Qualified college yeah, qualified expenses. Qualified college expenses. Okay. Cool. And we can have a, we can go deeper into some of these accounts as people have questions. Yeah, you can go deep dive later on. Okay. So now we've established what these accounts are, that there are many different kinds and an account being a basket. So what are some of the things that we can put into it? So a stock, tell me the difference between a stock, a bond, and a mutual fund.
0: Let's start with stocks versus bonds, because a mutual fund is not diff, it, it, It's not even in the same category as stocks. Well, and define
1: bonds. them very quickly, so,
0: and then, um, so a stock, if stock is um, what is represents ownership in a business, and so if you buy a share of a company's stock, so the little units are called shares of stock you literally own a small portion of that actual business. So these are real businesses with real customers, employees, buildings, equipment, all these types of things. It's an actual business. So if you own a share of XYZ business, you literally own part of that business. And if you buy and can accumulate enough shares of that business where you own more than 50 percent of that company guess what you get you you have voting rights you know any any one person has voting rights but if you're one of a billion shares you have one one billionth of a vote but if you have 51 percent of the shares you literally control the company that's that's the power where you get to vote who's on the board of directors and then the board of directors determines you know who's going to be the ceo who's going to be the coo etc and what's going to be the company's strategy and tactics moving forward. So um, this is real. If you own shares of stock, you actually own part of a company. Now, that's owning. On the other side of the investment world, there's a concept called loaning. You're loaning money to somebody. If you're loaning money to the federal government, they call those treasuries or treasury bills for the short term, treasury notes for the intermediate term, or treasury bonds for the long term. It's all the same thing. I hear the term T-bills as well sometimes. Short for treasury bills. So you're loaning the government some money for a very short period of time, like three months or something. If it's really long term, like 20 years plus, they call them bonds, but it's just terminology that means the same thing. You're loaning money to the federal government. They're going to pay you some interest. And then at the time when those things come due or mature you get your money back it's a promise to pay it's an iou when you're loaning so a bond if you hear the term bond it's an iou from the government if it's a treasury Um, if you're loaning your money to a state a county or a city town municipality those are called municipal bonds and it's the same thing interest rate In advance, you know what you're going to get paid. There's a promise to pay. When it comes due, you get your money back. If you loan your money to a corporation, those are called corporate bonds. So rather than owning a part of that business, you now are just loaning them money. You're the banker. You're lending them money and they're paying you back some kind of rate of return over a period of time. And then at the end, there's a promise to get your money back.
1: Can you expand on the corporate bonds a little bit? Talk a little bit about junk bonds and high yield bonds. Sure. And so within some of those subcategories, within the
0: bond world, there's businesses that will rate these these entities for their ability to pay. So if you and I were to go to get a loan at a bank, the bank's going to ask you for all this information to make sure you're good for it. Sure. Sure. And if you're really, really good for it, then you. You know, one measure that people see a lot is their credit score, their credit rating. And there's a lot of advertising about, know your credit rating. Well, if you have a high credit rating, it means that you're probably really good for the loan. You're going to pay. You're a
1: better risk. You're a better for, risk. To the bank.
0: It's it's safer to lend that person money than this other person. And it's the same thing when you go out into the bond world. There are uh, companies out there that put ratings on these different borrowers. It could be the city of Chicago, the state of Illinois, or the federal government. It could be um, Apple, Computer Corporation, whatever. It, it can be any of those. And if they're deemed to be really, really safe, they're going to have a higher rating. And those ratings they vary how they do it from company to company, but generally like A, B, C type of thing, or triple A, double A, single A, or A1, A2, A3, that kind of thing is is common. And then they have triple B, triple B, triple B, double B, B. So triple B is better than single B. And I didn't invent that terminology even sure. nice, and, nice <laughs> and simple, but it's it's a way of creating a grading scale for how, how good for it is that borrower.
1: Or how safe is that? Another way of well, saying it.
0: Yeah, I'd say yeah, safety when you're talking about bonds is, are they going to pay the interest? And, is that
1: company good for it? If I'm lending the money,
0: yeah, yeah, is, so are they good for and it? There's two pieces to the pie. So it's the one is, are they good for the interest? Are they going to be making their payments every, however often, it's every six months, every year, every month? Are they are they going to pay my interest payments? And the other one is, am I going to get my money back? That's kind of important if you're lending money. Well, sure, absolutely. You want to get your money back. So when people talk about um, like investment-grade bonds, they're talking about ratings that are generally like a triple B or higher. So triple B, A, double AA, A, triple A. Okay. Those are called investment-grade bonds. And those are very, very, very high-quality Um, highly probable those companies are good for it and they're not going to have a big default so it's like having a really high credit rating below triple B you enter the world of what's called high yield and high yield or sometimes you'll hear it called junk bonds um, is still a pretty broad universe of safety so what that means is is that you might have you know thousands of companies out there that are considered high yield but there's a huge difference between a, a company that is not rated at all, or C minus rated, in a company that's double B rated.
1: Can you say so, that a little differently? So as I'm thinking about a high-yield or junk bonds, so you're saying, OK, uh, an investment-grade bond is a very high-quality company like Apple or IBM right. or some massive company. Right. When you get into the high-yield bonds, You may potentially be talking about much smaller companies, but they still could have a thousand employees. Some of them might have a thousand employees and can still be substantial businesses, yet they're very, quote, small Mm -hmm. uh, compared to some of these giant corporations.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can have a really good, solid, I'd say, you know, compared to like, you know, a mom and pop small 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 business. Right, you know, right. You, you can have businesses where they have publicly traded securities, and they're still much more strong than than say your local small mom and pop shop. Potentially, I mean, there's mom and pop shops that are running things really really tightly, and they're they're really like strong financially. Um, but within that world of of high yield, the 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 thing that's really really important is that it's not it's not a black-and-white thing where you're either high-quality investment grade or, oh my god, you're at high risk of default. There's like a, a dimmer switch of risk there.
1: OK. So when you hear the term junk bonds, if somebody uses junk bonds, that doesn't necessarily mean you're investing in a bunch of businesses that are about to go yeah, bankrupt. It,
0: it's it's There is a higher risk of default than, say, Apple, Google, Facebook, where they're highly well-financed businesses. But there's a difference between weak er and so weak they're going to die tomorrow, and yeah. so it's it's definitely something to be aware of. And we're going way down the bond rabbit hole right now. Okay, but gotcha. That's, that's way deeper than probably we need to go. Okay, to, so at least for this for this podcast, we can dig into it later on or ask Q and A from you know if people have additional questions, just send them to us.
1: Okay, so speaking about investments, if we pull back a little bit, you mentioned earlier about own first loan as a concept as a way of thinking about different types of investments so we were just talking about those different types of loaning ways of loaning monies bonds and CDs and all those are different ways to lend money to people Mm -hmm. how do you what types of investments are you owning like stocks for example that would be you're owning a company the other things i'm thinking about are real estate and commodities can you yeah. talk a little bit about
0: yeah that? i mean it's it's the way it was described to me when i was uh, you know early on you know is that you can tell if you're owning or loaning really simply if there's a rate and a date you're probably loaning If there's not a specified rate and there's not a specified date, you're probably owning something. So you could own gold. You know, you could have gold coins in your coffee can in your kitchen, and you own that. And it's not—they're not magically replicating themselves. They're not magically sending income to your bank to your checking account. They're not giving you a raise. They're raised. just sitting there, or you know, doing whatever they're doing. You own them until you sell them. And the the goal there is that. You know, hopefully the price of that, whatever it is, goes up. That could be like art, collectibles. You you might hope your Beanie Baby collection from the <laughs> 1990s finally goes up in value. Uh, comes, you know, the, 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 the resurgence of, of Beanie Babies or whatever. But um, that's owning. You could own, like we said before, you could own part of a company stock. You could own real estate. Um, and the... But anytime you're owning an asset that you're hoping is going to grow in value, generally that's going to be um, owning. So if there's not a rate and a date, you're probably owning. If there's a rate and a date, probably loaning.
1: Okay. Something that has come up, I'm not sure how to ask the question, but when we talk about stocks, stocks seem to be uh, the basic, most basic, common. Mm quote investment that people are interested in Yeah. yet when people use the term stock it can mean many different things right. and maybe we can talk about the word stock and what that might mean and so can
0: we come back to that briefly and jump over to the ways someone might Like the packaged investment. Okay,
1: yeah. All right. Type
0: models because then it we can circle back to that to that. All right. I'm circling it. We'll get back to it and get uh, and maybe it'll be more clear. So, not only can you buy individual stocks or individual bonds, CDs, notes, bills, whatever. You can own individual real estate. know you're going to own a home and rent it out or own a building and rent it out that kind of thing so you're owning things individually what's most common with most investors is you can buy all sorts of these types of things in diversified packages if you will so if you've heard the term mutual fund i'm going to talk about mutual funds exchange traded funds and index funds these are all examples of that. So, um, And this goes back to that first question. Should I buy an index fund hmm. or some other thing that's absolutely not apples to apples? So um, it can happen even The Roth here, IRA. The Roth IRA. Yeah. But it can also happen here where someone might say, hey, should I own a mutual fund or an index fund? And should I own uh, an exchange-traded fund or an index fund? And uh, they're really subsets of each other. So at least in my mind. So it, a, a mutual fund is basically a basket of individual securities, individual investments. It could be and it's and usually there's someone managing that and picking those individual securities for you. So you say, "Hey, I only have 500 bucks, but I don't want to put it all in one stock. I want to still be diversified. I want to put all I'd like to buy, you know, the overall market index, for example, I want to own five hundred stocks, but I only have five hundred dollars, and you really can't do that. Okay, one by one by one. So mutual funds were created so that someone can buy uh, with a with with whatever amount of money they can instantly have something diversified, and, and that could be something that invests in stocks only. It could also a mutual fund could also own stocks and bonds. Like a blend. And it could also own just bonds. So whenever you have a fund, um, it doesn't mean that it's just in stocks. It doesn't mean it's just in bonds. It doesn't mean it's just in stocks and bonds. There's a whole universe there within the mutual fund world where you're basically hiring a, a team of people to pick and choose those investments for you. So that's a a mutual fund. And then within the mutual fund world...
1: Before you move on from that, so a mutual fund is where investors, many, many investors, get together and they can contribute. I might be able to contribute $500 into this fund. You might have another $500 to invest. So that's $1,000 between the two of us. Then,
0: and the Joneses down the street might have $500,000 to invest okay. in that same strategy. And
1: so all of these investors are pulling their money together. Mutually. A manager is hired to manage this pool of money in a mutual fund. And right. then they go about, they, the managers, invest all of
0: our collective monies in, in different whatever. investments. And whatever that strategy is. It could be stocks and say, hey, we're going to buy stocks, it could mean we're just going to try to replicate the Dow Jones Industrial Average, an index. And when they do that, or or the S&P 500 index, we're just going to buy those 500 companies in the exact same mixture that Standard & Poor's publishes, and we're going to mimic, our mutual fund is going to totally mimic that index that's out there in the news, and that's what's called an index fund. Okay. Or... You might have a strategist a real highly experienced team of people out there and their their fund their mutual fund is has a different goal it says we're gonna try to take less risk than whatever than the whatever index or we're gonna seek higher return than that index and they're gonna do a different strategy and if they're doing that and they're picking different stocks than that index or different bonds than the bond index that would be called like an actively managed mutual fund. But if you're trying to replicate an index that's published by some company like Standard and Poor's or Dow Jones, that's an index fund. If you're doing anything other than that, that's considered active active management. Even if you're buying and holding, generally that's considered, you know, an active manager just because they're not trying to replicate some index.
1: Okay. And for the purposes of this conversation, there it's not that an active managed fund and an index fund—that one's better than the other. It's just having an understanding of what the difference is between. Yeah, the I mean two.
0: That, that an actively managed fund might be trying to beat that index, or they may not even care. They may be doing completely their own thing. So sometimes it's apples and oranges, but it's really really important. To, this is, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hammer this one into the ground a little bit. Index fund does not mean just stock indexes. Mutual fund does not mean that they only invest in stocks. We've had we've we've had we've met people that have you know I don't want to own mutual funds because that because because it's in the stock market, and we've even had people that own all bond funds in their portfolio who were still comparing their accounts to the stock market every day in the newspaper or online. And um, it's really really important to understand that uh, there's a wide huge universe out there, and there's any kind of. Investment you can imagine, there's a mutual fund around it. There's mutual funds that only invest in real estate. There's mutual funds that only invest in gold. There's mutual funds that only invest in stocks or bonds or treasury bonds. It's a big world out there and it's not as simple as, again, people love simple and we even advocate, you know, you need things to be simple, but you also need to be effective. Right. So that's just mutual funds and index funds. Hopefully we touched on that. Um, can we explain yeah. uh, these
1: different investments? you've used this terminology having uh, different tools in the toolbox. Each investment can be viewed as a different type of tool. So is a stock mutual fund good? Is it bad? Well, it can be viewed like a hammer. If you need to nail in a nail, right. Right. the mutual, a stock mutual fund may be the Might best be the investment tool. for you. The best tool.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's a hundred percent accurate. Um, you know, but it's, And that's true of anything. I mean, all these different investments, they're never good or they're they're never bad. There's no perfect silver bullet type of investment. Um, They do change from time to time. What's been doing well lately, what's, you know, whatever. And that's a deeper conversation for us uh, probably than we have time for today. But you have, um, you you know, there's a lot of analogies. Players on a team. Sure. You know whatever but you need you need the you need the team to succeed and it just depends on what game you're playing how many players you need and and, and what types of players you need on that team if you're playing chess you need one player or, so you know if you're playing football you need a wide variety of players on that team so all
1: right so we've got you've talked a little bit about index funds and actively managed funds let's hit a little bit on mutual funds
0: and exchange traded funds okay so if we understand what a mutual fund is, Which we just discussed the what's come out in the last i want to say like 20 years or so is this idea of an exchange traded fund so just a little background mutual funds the way they worked is you you get all that diversification and you place a trade on your brokerage account to buy that mutual fund on monday afternoon at one o'clock and you have no idea what you're paying per share for that fund until the end of the day because they're only priced once a day. And the other thing with mutual funds is that they you don't ever really know on a daily basis what's inside. They don't publish that. It's like a quarterly report that says and you get it in like let's say for first quarter you might get the first quarterly report sometime in May that says hey on March 31st here's what we owned two months ago. Um, Mutual funds had a popularity because of the diversification, and uh, uh, there was a demand and a desire and an idea that said, "Hey, what what if you could get the benefits of a mutual fund—the diversification—you could own like a thousand things inside of a fund, Um, but if you had some of the transparency and our, you know, uh, like minute-to-minute pricing that you get from stocks or bonds." And uh, that was the advent of what's called an exchange traded fund. So it's a fund similar to, you know, typically they're they're closer to like index funds where they're tracking some index. And they're owning, again, stocks or bonds or some blend in between. There is absolutely no, like, are ETFs better than stocks? You know, some of them own stocks. Some of them own bonds. Um, They're very, very different from each other, just like anything else. A big universe out there. But the exchange traded funds can trade just like a stock on the stock exchange. You so put, they're
1: traded moment to
0: moment, where the mutual fund is only traded at the end of the day, right? Right. I mean, you can buy it at eight thirty in the morning a mutual fund, but you'll get you'll get the the price at the end of the day, you know, on the mutual fund. Whereas an exchange traded fund, you could buy it at eight a.m. in one account, and you could buy it at, or sorry, eight a.m. It may be Pacific, but if you could buy it when the market opens at eight thirty Central at one price. And then at lunchtime, you could buy some more shares and the price will be totally different. So throughout the day, you can have a difference there. And there's some other added little little tools on some of the exchange traded funds where people can do things that are kind of interesting, like limit orders, stop loss orders, that kind of thing. And we'll get into those much, much later. That's a little bit more from the... What we'll okay. Dive into so
1: today. an exchange traded fund tends to be a little bit more... Is it safe to say that it's a little bit more... Um, just lost the word, Brian. Um, well, they're more flexible.
0: Um, you can do things with exchange traded funds that you don't, you can't do with a mutual fund. Okay. Yeah. And that's so they've become very, very popular because of that. And they're transparent every single day. So at the end of the day, you could say, What exact stocks did they own or bonds did they own today? And they will say, Here's all the bonds that that exchange traded fund owned, you know, that ETF. Um. And and that you just don't get that with a mutual fund. Like if you really want to know, I mean, we we, so what sometimes in the the Facebook groups, people say, hey, what are some good long term stocks? They're like good quality businesses to invest in, and it seems like, I don't know, to me that's, you know, we're in it. We've been in this for you know twenty five years for me, thirty years for you. But it's so some of this we take for granted. But the, the hack, or rather a hack is if you want to know the biggest, most successful companies, you could look at what's inside of some of those big index funds and look at their top holdings, you know.
1: So the simplest way is to start with the S&P 500 index and see yes. what stocks are individually in yeah, there. Yeah. Oh.
0: And, and and as we're talking about these packaged investments, just, the thought just came to me. This is. I mean, this is, just, I guess, a moral imperative for me to, to get this out among beginners many many beginner investors and amateur investors fall prey to um, marketers that are out there promising them something that's extraordinary in the way of returns and usually those people are not licensed professionals providing advice registered with the sec these are people who are selling a quote system you know follow my system and sign up for my program come to my seminars or whatever and i'll teach you all the magical esoteric ways of trading where I got, you know, a bazillion rate of return over the last few years and here look at me on a video with my private jet and wads of cash all over my bed and the luxury cars and luxury houses me walking around telling everybody how I did this and you can too. Um just just some perspective here. Almost as we're talking about these exchange traded funds and mutual funds There is such a wide variety of those things that virtually any investment strategy known to mankind that's ever been developed, tried, experimented with, and successful or failure. And successful successful strategies or failed strategies, virtually everything under the sun has been packaged as a mutual fund or as an index fund. I mean, if you're into you know uh, dividend growth you have multiple choices if you're into large u.s. stocks small u.s. stocks um, all kinds of different trading strategies it's been done I mean really think about that as you're looking at these people trying to sell you something that sounds too good to be true or sounds extraordinary ask yourself this question if it's that good why is not it been packaged as a fund? Because that's where they could really make more money. What's their motivation for not packaging it as a fund? What's their motivation for not being a fiduciary and calling themselves an investment advisor? Why are they just selling some system? And maybe there's people out there that are doing that that I'm unaware of, but at least in my 25 years, logic tells me if somebody had something that was that great, it would have been packaged as a fund, and if that fund got those kinds of results, it would be a global household name. And I don't think I've got my head in the sand. Are you aware of any fund out there that's absolutely crushing any index it tries to compete against consistently on a daily basis, getting like 3 and 5% daily returns? No, I don't know any fund years? like that. It's just not probable, it's not likely, so you know, gosh, people just need to be aware of that stuff. it's it's so easy to fall prey when you're you you're getting an ad for you know somebody who you don't even know talking about how they're rich now because they were awesome. Mm-hmm. you know, and they're not an advisor, they're not a fiduciary, they're not they're not registered with the SEC, but they're willing to sell you. Books and CDs, books, CDs, subscriptions to programs of quote educational material, you know, and uh, you either will or you won't. It'll either work or it won't. If it works, you'll keep buying, and if it won't, they'll keep marketing to somebody else who falls for it. Right. So I, I just I just want to. That's a little bit of a rabbit hole, but that's yep. just. Gosh, people need to be careful.
1: So let me. We'll have a little pregnant pause here and then i'd like to pull you out of the rabbit hole and let's get back to that last thing that last question about the word stock there's multiple uses of the word stock when you have folks talking having conversations we see it in facebook posts uh, when somebody is using the word stock it appears they're using it for different very different definitions. It means mm-hmm. different things at different times. And if we could try to at least explain what some of those different uses of the word is before we kind of move on. Like for instance, a stock is a share of of ownership in a company.
0: Yeah, so you're saying an individual stock, but then you'll listen to see like CNBC or something, or Fox News, Fox Business News, or, or anywhere on you know, and you'll read or you'll read an article somewhere that says you know um, stocks today did this.
1: Right, that's the difference.
0: Right, or or you'll hear people talking about how much stock exposure somebody should have in their portfolio. And so we're talking about very different things here. Um, the word "stock" is used. But it's really important. And, and, and as an example of this, um, I did a post on a Facebook group probably five or six months ago. And I said, hey, I, was, I think I was answering a question from somebody. And, they, and I said, you know, I, I tend to focus on diversified baskets and packages of, of stocks rather than individual stocks. And whether it's, you know, mutual fund, you know, in our practice, we have we've had, uh, you know, we're predominantly exchange traded funds now ETFs, but we also have mutual funds out there that, you know, and there's some of those that are worth having still, but we, we tend to go that way. And I think the person said something like, you know, why do you do that? And I said, well, there's a better risk versus reward, generally speaking, with owning a fund or an exchange traded fund, even an index fund, whatever, versus owning an individual stock. And the person replied and said, "Really, I thought it was the other way around. In their mind, they thought that a, an individual stock actually had more reward for the amount of volatility that you get, and that's that's patently false. Generally, it's it's stocks, an individual stock will generally be way more volatile than, say, the overall market.
1: Okay, sure, right, and, right. and,
0: and so." Um, But but the terminology is confusing. So when someone says a stock, they're talking about an individual stock. But when somebody's saying, hey, you ought to have like 30% of your money in stocks or 70% of your money in stocks, that includes the mutual fund version of stocks. That includes the index fund version of stocks. That includes like overall how much of your portfolio is in stocks either directly or indirectly by buying some sort of a fund. So it can mean... All those things. When you're watching the news and they say, stocks today did this, they're talking about the overall market indexes, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500.
1: I think it's worth mentioning the word equity or equities because those words are synonymous with stocks. It's another way of
0: saying Mm -hmm. stocks. So equity is ownership. You have equity in your home. It's how much of the home do you own versus how much the bank still owns. That's Mm -hmm. your equity. And uh, when somebody uses the term, like in plural, equities, it's the same as saying stocks. Which is the same as saying individual stocks, stocks inside of stock funds, whatever. So, you know, it's not, the, the, when somebody says stocks, they don't mean you need to be going out there trying to pick individual stocks. You can get, you can get very, very, very successful as a long-term investor and never own one individual stock your whole life. You can own it you can own it indirectly. You could own the S P five hundred index fund for 40 years and you'll get some you could potentially get some very, very good returns. Historically that's worked pretty well. And it's not it's not a silver bullet either, but it's just one of the more popular indexes out there. But if you look inside that those ETFs that follow the S P five hundred or an index fund or even a, a mutual fund that owns a large US stocks, you look at those holdings, they're gonna be really similar. It's gonna have Apple, General Electric, 3M, Facebook, Google, you know, Hewlett-Packard is going to have all these huge, huge companies inside. And guess what? Those are stocks and you own them. You may not feel like you own them when you read your statement or check your, your online brokerage app and look at what you own, but you dig inside there and you might realize, oh my gosh, I own thousands of dollars of Apple already. I don't need to buy Apple. I already own it. It's inside my fund. So yeah, stocks doesn't mean you need to own individual stocks. The average person, honestly, in my opinion, the average person doesn't need to be out there trying to pick stocks. Pick
1: individual companies. Yeah,
0: to own. I mean, it, the odds are against you.
1: Right. Okay. So let's shift a little bit and let's talk about some other words that are we use and maybe we use them too often without much explanation. Mm-hmm. We use the word portfolio and diversification and asset allocation, and so some of these words. Well, okay, let's let's talk a little bit about how those, how we use those when we chat with folks.
0: So, the the most common word it seems like in the in the, in the investing world, in, in the investing world or among regular people, is this idea of diversification. And you'll find different divest, in, uh, definitions of that out there what diversification is. In the simplest form, you don't put all your eggs in one basket.
1: So don't just buy IBM stock with
0: all of your money. And there's layers to this. There's layers. There's a there's a picture in, hanging on my office wall of an iceberg, <laughs> kind of the profile of an iceberg. You see most of it's underwater. And the reason is because there's always a little bit more to the eye than, than meets the eye. So same thing with the word diversification. So are you diversifying if you go from owning like you said just ibm stock to owning a exchange traded fund that owns the thousand largest companies in america are you more diversified yes you are more diversified than you were owning one or two or three stocks it's it's good why because you own more stocks what you have done is by owning a thousand companies is you've reduced the risk you're taking of that one stock or one business going belly up, if if you have a thousand companies and one of them goes bankrupt and the the stock is worthless, you still have nine hundred ninety nine more that didn't, and so you've taken less risk. You're a little more diversified. Now that's the that's the simplest layer of diversification. Does that mean you're safe? Objectively safe, because now you own a thousand stocks. Does that mean you're you're going to have a smooth ride in every statement you're going to get? Every year is going to be an up year because you own a 1,000 companies. Nope. Not even a little bit. You still have 100% of that money is in stocks through that fund. You own a 1,000 stocks. That means you're going to be bouncing around just like the overall stock market. And you can have up years and down years. And you can still be pretty volatile. You know, and, and in, like in 2008 that whole crisis from top to bottom was like a 50% drop. The stock market basically cut itself in half. You could have been diversified by owning your index fund or your mutual fund that owns a thousand companies and it still dropped probably around 50% if it's a large US stock fund with invest in large in large US companies. So that's one layer of diversification. On so the you
1: can diversify in your stock holdings, your equity holdings. You can have a diversified right, right. portfolio of stocks.
0: And it can work on the other end of the spectrum. You could be diversified by owning a 1,000 different bonds from a 1,000 different borrowing companies, and it's a similar thing. If one of them defaults, you've reduced that company level of risk because you have, you've lent to a 1,000 companies, so if one of them goes belly up. So it works on the stock side, it works on the bond side, and that's, that's like basic diversification. When you start looking at blending stocks and bonds and cash, like categories of investing, that's when you hear advisors talking about asset allocation. So you're allocating your money, your different investments across not only different stocks or different bonds, but you're allocating it. I've got some money in the stock market, in my funds or my whatever, and I've got some money in the bonds and I've got some money in cash. Maybe I've got some money in Beanie Babies, collectibles, or um, maybe I've got some money in... uh, gold real estate those are the big quote asset classes so you have different types of, of things you can invest in assets that you can invest in and those those are called asset classes so asset allocation is just how you're blending all of those different big picture things together you're you're in a way you're diversifying because you're you're definitely in different types of things you don't have all your eggs in one basket um, but it's It's just another level of, I guess, diversification because you're getting a lot bigger differences between how stocks behave and bonds behave in the short run.
1: Sure. If you own some stocks and you own some bonds, there might be a day when your stocks go up in value and your bonds don't. Right. Inside your account, inside your entire investment portfolio. Mm -hmm. And I guess a portfolio is another way of saying all of your it's all of investable it assets yeah your portfolio uh,
0: your it's that's no big deal a portfolio is just everything else that you've invested in everything combined so that's and it includes everything your 401k your brokerage account your roth ira your ira and all the investments inside it's quote your portfolio
1: here's a couple other words volatility is a word that we use quite a bit when we talk about risk
0: this is a real easy one. Volatility, you know, things bounce around if you look at any long-term charts of any investments, you see they bounce around.
1: Bounce around I mean they go up
0: and down. They go up value. and down in value on a day-to-day, hour hour month-to-month, week-to-week, whatever, year-to-year basis. It's they go up and down. And they don't go they don't they generally go up over the long run when you're looking at like a stock market chart over like 20, 30, 40 year periods of time, generally the trend has been up. But along the way, it's bouncing around. So the the analogy, the simple way of thinking about volatility, and I've used this for my whole career is, and and it goes back to an analogy that I was I was trained with is it, and I'm going to use the stock market as an example. And and I'm only using this because it's such a common thing. The stock market, by no means, it, should everybody be in the stock market. Um, there will be people that disagree with us on that. Um, a lot of people probably have some reason to have some exposure to the stock market one way or another but um by no means is a fiduciary somebody whose job is to get you into the stock market this is just a topic so rest easy sometimes there's somebody comes in and 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 the most appropriate thing in the world for their situation is to buy a bunch of cds so this is just a topic of conversation so relax (laughs) we're in a safe spot here um if you look at a stock market index chart, say for the last hundred years, the analogy that was described to me when I was a, 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 a wee whittle rookie, learning how to do things right out of college, it, it, it's the image of someone walking up a flight of stairs, and their hand is they're playing with a yo-yo, and their hand is over the railing, so the yo-yo can go below the level of the stair. So the yo-yo goes up and down. That's the short-term ups and downs of the market. But generally speaking, the yo-yo is eventually going to get to the second and third and fourth floor of the building.
1: Because you're walking up the stairs, the market generally goes up over
0: time. Right. So back to your question about volatility. Volatility is just a way of measuring how long is the string on that yo-yo. If it's a short string, it's low volatility. And the price isn't going to move. It's not moving around that very much. Very much. In the short run. If you have a long string on the yo-yo, more volatility. Now here's the catch. Generally speaking, the things that tend to have a longer string on the yo-yo tend over very long periods of time. What's very long periods of time? 20 years or more. Long time is 20 years or more. It's not five years or three seconds. It's, you know, two weeks in the news cycle on Fox News is like an eternity, but we're talking about 20 years, half, you know, a good chunk of somebody's lifetime. But if you look at those long periods of time, generally speaking, there's been a trade off where if you're going to walk up a steeper flight of stairs, you can only get a long string on your yo-yo. That's the that's the trade-off. If you're going to get higher long-term returns, there's going to be more short-term volatility. That's
1: so investments that are have higher volatility and higher price movements in general tend to do better
0: over 20 years and plus. Historically that Historically. has been the case. Yes. Likewise, If someone wants to... There's a trick when you're playing with a yo-yo called walking the dog. I could never do that. I could never do that either. I can barely make a yo-yo go up and down before it gets all tangled. Yeah. I'm not that coordinated. Um, But if you're trying to play walk the dog, so if, if, you're, if you've if you never played with a yo-yo, walking the dog is a trick where it looks like the yo-yo is rolling in front of you like you're walking a dog on a leash and the string is on your finger and, and basically it's just rolling along. It's not bouncing up and down. It's just rolling along the ground. If someone is looking for an investment that doesn't have any volatility, then they're not gonna have much of a stairway to go up. It's gonna to have to be a ramp. And that ramp is gonna take a lot, it's gonna take a lot longer to get from the first floor to the second floor if you're walking the dog, so to speak, up that ramp. And so that's why you see like really, really safe, stable things like savings accounts and checking accounts pay much, much less than what the long-term returns of say the the stock market indexes have been over history, so that's that's just that's the word on volatility. So there's definitely a trade-off, you know, cool. it, between you're going to get more volatility if you're seeking higher long-term returns.
1: Another word that comes up
0: is liquidity. Yeah, this is a uh, I mean. It's, for I guess a fairly common financial term. Um, but there are people out there that just don't understand what that means. It just means can you get your money? Can you and how fast can you get your money? So if you have a checking account, it's like really liquid. You can get your money like now on demand. Um, if you have a brokerage account, and you have like exchange traded funds. well, they're liquid. 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 11 a.m. in between. I mean, minute by minute, you can place a trade. And once you place that trade, you know, within a day or so, you can have your money in your checking account and you get your money pretty liquid. I mean, you can move that money around very quickly and easily and get access to it.
1: So they're actually generally more liquid than mutual funds because you said mutual funds, you can get to them at the end of the day only.
0: Yeah, mutual funds. Well, you can't, you still can't like get the money at the end of the day. If you place a trade, you'll get the price at the end of the day. And then you, Then it goes through a settlement process. It takes a few days for the money to exchange hands. You know, if you sold your shares, you got to make sure the buyer was good for it. And the money, and that you know, there's, you know, can the companies probably move it quicker than that? Yeah, they probably could, but they like to sit on our money. You know, banks sit on your checks for a week and a half before they clear that kind of thing. It's just part of the way they do things. But but yeah, liquidity is how basically how it's just how fast can you get your money? Okay, so
1: speaking of if you. You hear a lot about owning real estate, so hey, I yeah. want to buy a house, buy an apartment complex, and uh, rent rent it out. So that's that's a great investment for me because I've got tenants that are paying me rent, so I have income, right. and the price of my building is going to go up over time, and so my value of my property is going up. So that sounds like a great investment. Let me put all my money in real estate and buy buildings with all of my money. Mm-hmm. The problem with having a building and real estate, the problem with that is their liquidity is you have very low liquidity yeah it
0: takes a lot it takes a long time to sell a house or an apartment building or an office building.
1: You right know? You can't sell a part of your house to go buy groceries that day right
0: right so it's it's a um, that's a great example of something that just takes longer to get your money.
1: Okay, so when looking at investments that you're choosing, when you're choosing to make investments, and you're looking at different options, liquidity is one of the things that you might want to look at too. Right, it's when you're making your choices.
0: Yeah, some like for example, some investments are you're locked in for a period of time. Um, you might have penalties to get out. Other investments are like truly you're you're locked in and have no control. Like you may have no idea when you're getting your money back. And like a great example of that in like the high net high net worth world is uh, uh, you get to a point where some people will have a large, very large portfolio, you know, multiple millions of dollars and they'll start to, or they're very, very high income people and they they want to um, invest in privately held businesses. So these aren't publicly traded stocks. These aren't like SEC registered things. You've you've basically hired some experts, quote, fiduciaries, if you will, to um, go out and, evaluate and invest in privately held businesses that have not yet gone public. They don't have publicly traded stock. They're just private businesses. They call it private equity. It's another one of those asset classes, if you will. But generally you got to be like a millionaire to even look at those things. Sure. And one of the features that, of those that has been uh at least reportedly is that they've they have achieved better returns than publicly traded stocks over some periods of time. And the trade-off is 100% of it is there's liquidity Um, there are private equity funds out there where you put your money in and then they may call you back and say like you may sign up and say I pledge that I'll invest up to $100,000 in this and they'll say great we don't we don't have anywhere to put it yet so give us $10,000 today and they may call you back in like a month or two and say okay we need 20,000 right away so you if you if you pledge you're gonna put your hundred grand in there You got to kind of set that hundred grand aside because they're gonna call you up and say, "We found a business to buy. Give us give us the money you pledged." And so that's on the front end. You don't know when your money's going in, but you have to be ready. And on the back end of that is you have no idea when they're gonna eventually sell those businesses that they bought. When are you gonna get your money? It could be a very long time. And so that's the trade off. Like you're you're ideally maybe you're getting compensated for that lack of liquidity. Um, and that lack of control and uncertainty, um, and hopefully that's always the case. But that that's a great example there, too, um, where you're locked up and you don't know when you're getting your money back.
1: And you don't have liquidity. No liquidity there. Until... So that's what that word means. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're kind of talking about investments, and annuities are something that you and I have discussed and trying to figure out how to bring that into the conversation here.
0: Lord knows there's enough people out there using that word in good ba- good ways and bad ways.
1: That's right. So, let's talk about annuities for a little bit. Okay. So, let me give us the, let me just yeah, take please. the first you're step. The,
0: you're the insurance license person here.
1: So an annuity, you hear uh, a lot of people have, uh, think annuities are bad. They're very expensive. Annuities are expensive annuities are bad. Uh, It's just a tool. An annuity is just another tool. It's not good or bad. It's got its place in your financial world, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. In the simplest terms, an annuity is where you are giving money to an insurance company. And then the insurance company, in turn, is giving you a stream of payments. So you're buying a stream of payments from the insurance company by giving them money. So that's in the simplest terms. So annuities like, are very
0: complicated
1: and there's all kinds, but yeah. in the simplest terms. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so so in that in that particular example, the old original, you know, they've been around for a couple hundred years these ideas of annuities is that you give an insurance company some money and then they give you a guaranteed amount of like monthly or annual payments for a certain period of time. It could be as That's long correct. as you live, it could be as long as you and your wife or spouse lives. It could be ten years. That's right. It and could be twenty years. Whatever it is. So but that was the that was the definition of the original clean, what they would call immediate annuity.
1: Yes. So as an annuity in a simplest form is what's called an immediate annuity. Right.
0: Now, how, when, when you hear annuities in the modern age, that's like very, very, very few annuities that I have ever, ever seen are doing that in the modern age. So things have really evolved.
1: Yes. They've, they have. and Yes. Um, There are many different types of annuities, and I guess I don't want to go down that rabbit hole about describing the various different types of annuities. I'd like to stay high level for the purposes here, and then Mm -hmm. from there we can build on that conversation and maybe even continue it later on. But from the simplest terms, you give an insurance company money, they in turn give you the income, and... They provide different types of income to you.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Uh, so the different types of income, in general, the most common is life only income, or joint and survivor. And so sometimes, like pensions, you'll see these terms uh, in terms of pensions. An annuity is creating a pension for yourself. So a life only annuity. I'm a single person. I'm giving the insurance company a hundred thousand dollars and they are giving me $1,000 a month as long as I live. That's life only. Sometimes I might be married, and you might get a different benefit called joint and survivor. In that case, that income stream continues as long as me as or my As long as you both wife. shall live, yes. so to speak. So as long as one of us is alive, that annuity will continue to pay out. So an annuity... Is capable of providing that type of an income, of that type of income, and that kind of benefit. So, why do you use an annuity? Well, consider this: if you just have money in your investment, so that you have your hundred thousand dollars, and you invest it in your investment account, your brokerage account, and you invest in stocks, bonds, and cash, and that money grows over time, and then you start taking out money, you may start taking out. Your is like
0: you're retiring and yeah. you're, you're going to use this to supplement your Social Security income or your pension. Right. Got so
1: it. you've saved money and now you're turning on income because you're no longer working. So this bucket of money that you saved earns a, um, can generate a thousand dollars. You start withdrawing a thousand dollars from this account. Mm-hmm. Over time, that account is going to continue to earn interest but the price can also fluctuate if you own stocks.
0: That could be interest, dividends, or growth, whatever your total return really is. From those three sources, you've got to earn interest from your bonds. You could get dividends from your stocks that pay dividends. You could also have the things that grow in value. Right. So one way or another, you've got your, you've got your whatever your savings is, your $100,000 in your example. It's growing, but you may be pulling. You, your goal may be to only pull out what it earns. Right. But, but So if have, we're just like, sticking with that
1: yeah, $1,000, The account value may start going down in value over time based Mm -hmm. on how well the investments are doing. So we can have a 2008 situation where all of your stocks, the value of all of your stock funds get cut in half. And so you may find that your account that was originally $100,000 actually goes to zero. So you've been pulling out your money. Back
0: up a second. You said something gets cut in half. Okay. And now it's zero.
1: OK, yeah, all right. So over time, you've created this bucket of money. You've invested your money. And you start taking $1,000 a month in retirement. So
0: you're pulling 12% a year out of this $100,000 account.
1: $12,000 yes.
0: a year out of it.
1: If your account doesn't earn that much,
0: then over time, it's going to be declining in value. And if yes, I see where you're going. So, so you're saying, OK, you've invested this pile of money. You're pulling money out at, a, at a whatever clip you're pulling it out at. You know, in your make in your case, a thousand, thousand dollars a month. So home. if that, in the best of circumstances, if that account is earning, let's say it's earning a great rate of return, it's earning like eight percent. So it's earning eight thousand a year, and you're pulling twelve out. By definition, it earns eight. You pull out twelve. Now you get ninety six. Right. Then that ninety six thousand earns eight. You pull out 12 again, you've got something less than 96. And 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 over time, that could decline in value. So that's in the best of circumstances where things are, excuse me, those are things really smooth returns. But then you have a, a, something that is actually a common thing. If somebody's retired for 20 or 30 years, you can have a bear market like the 2008 scenario, where a portion of your account can drop significantly But you still need to pull out your twelve thousand dollars that year. Yes, that's correct. You're kind of in this like, you know, catch twenty-two, and it's going to just spiral downward. Correct. Until there potentially, if you live long enough,
1: you need to either reduce the amount of money that you withdraw from the account, or you run out of money.
0: Right. And so, like a pension or Social Security, those won't run out. Correct. An annuity provides some level of a guaranteed stream of income regardless.
1: Exactly. So an annuity is a way for you to create income certainty and income protection. And so once you start receiving this money, if it's a life-only income, and you live for uh, until you're 120 years old, that annuity is going to continue to pay all those years and that annuity income can potentially outlast the income that you can get from an investment account the
0: primary use for this tool this idea of an annuity and again like you said high level very simple there's a there's a lot of different ways and like different kinds of annuities. The annuity world is almost as big as the mutual fund world. It's not like you can't say annuity. It's kind of like saying investment, almost, because there are so many types of annuities. There's annuities where you're getting your return from loaning your money. There's annuities where you have opportunity to own things and invest in the stock market, too. And there's all, all different kinds of There's annuities with all kinds of different guarantees and benefits and bells and whistles that are interesting and, and, and can be uniquely designed to different people and we don't want to go into the details of any of those specific things but people just need to be aware this isn't a one type of thing right it's just what what might it be used for what's this tool and where does it fit in potentially and someday we'll talk more about this but generally speaking you're trying to um reduce the risk of what they call Longevity. So if you if you outlive your money, if you outlive your pile of investments, having guaranteed streams of income,
1: like an annuity,
0: like an annuity, like a pension, can help your financial situation. Like a social security, at least it gives you. Well, it gives you at least a safety net. I mean, yes. It's not like these things aren't miracle working things either. I mean, as we've we've looked at these things of late, and these types of annuities you're describing, the pure you know, turn your pile into an income stream annuities. Interest rates are so low, at least at right now in 2020. It's, right, it's right. Not, it's not very attractive at the moment in many cases. No, uh, but for, for, the for the sake the of the definition, definition
1: of yeah. what it is, an annuity, when you hear an annuity, it's just a tool. When people are talking yeah. about it and they're bad-mouthing it, it's like bad-mouthing a pair of pliers. You've got a toolbox, the pair of pliers has its job. The annuity has its job. If it's done appropriately, it could be a beneficial. It can be beneficial to you. Right. If it's misused, then just like anything, um, it could be a bad use of right. your money.
0: And, 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 and I, I'd say that 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 touches on just a, a a side thought here is that when when you see companies marketing by bad mouthing a tool, um, it's it's marketing. It's generally marketing, and um, I'd say in in uh, does that mean in every single case, every single person needs to have a certain kind of tool? No, absolutely not. In patently false. But there are there are tools out there, and there are situations where you can use a tool appropriately. So yeah, that that's that's a point well made.
1: So yeah, let's. We can have a, a deeper conversation about annuities. There's just so much there. But the the short answer is it's a tool. It's not good or bad. And if folks have questions about annuities and Contact what they can do, who's talk licensed. to your yeah licensed professional who you work with. Right. All right, cool. Uh, let's see. What is a budget? So now we're switching gears again, and we're talking a little bit more about
0: uh Dude, you general. Said, you just said a dirty word, Dan. Budget. Don't say that again. <laughs> so this this came up. Uh, you had, you had been talking to a family member, uh, one of the younger family members who who just said just graduated from college. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, hey, I don't even know what even the basics some some of these terms are. So, you know, um. One of our, one of our eight guidelines that we talked about last, last time on the podcast was, in our, it's actually our first one is you need to know yourself and we're going to do a whole podcast episode on that topic. But, um, the way I look at it is your, your budget is kind of like pre-planning where your money's going to go. You need to know you, you bring in some income from your, your job, your business, and you have, you have money arriving on a periodic basis into your checking account. Paycheck, wages, rental income from your awesome real estate empire, whatever. You've got income coming in. And then you have how you spend your money and how you, what you do with that money. And really, your budget is nothing more than saying, all right, I've got this much money coming in, I'm gonna decide in advance how much money's gonna go here, how much money's gonna go there, and that's the that's that's the simplest form. I mean, I don't want to dive into it too deep because we'll we're going to cover that in in the in the know yourself episode. But um, but that, that at a very basic, it's hey, pre-plan where your money, know where your money is going to be going. Right, a budget is it's, planning ahead. Yeah, it's, it's kind of uh, spending your money on purpose instead of oh look, there's money in the checking account. I guess I can buy that shiny thing. You know impulse purchases that kind of thing
1: sure uh, let's see the other shifting gears again talking about different terms uh, the term financial advisor I'm not sure if this is something oh god to get into
0: yeah it probably is worth a while because good Lord it's it's a shame, but the financial industry is very frag. the 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 financial professionals that are out there is very fragmented, and you have various licenses, various ways of doing business, various ways of compensating those professionals. Um, and there's there's not like a uniform standard for someone who calls themselves financial advisor. So. It's a it's kind of a a broad based term that's easier to understand that, oh, I'm getting advice on my finances. It seems seems pretty obvious. Um, The challenge I have is that with that whole term is there's a lot of people that do very, very different things from one another. That all call themselves financial advisors. And it's not fair to the general public, but it's just the way things are at the moment. So, why don't I just, why don't I just try to like give an overview of some of those different types of individuals so that when somebody's talking to someone who's, quote, a financial advisor, they can like maybe ask a few key questions and differentiate sure who who is this person i'm talking to and what is their real what's situation? their role and yeah. what are they trying to accomplish what 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 do you really do for me so um i'm just going to walk through my own career as a example um you know I, I started my career out of college and i worked as a this is a this is a term i w- i was basically hired as a Registered representative is the term for a brokerage firm, and so that brokerage firm, uh, my title was investment representative. But from the, as far as the regular regulators were concerned, the the technical term was you take a licensing exam, and you you become licensed as a registered representative to sell securities meaning investments Mm -hmm. everything from cds to bonds to stocks mutual funds all that stuff um you know with individuals and then you are compensated generally on a sales commission so someone invests money there's a commission charged that's how you earn your earn your keep you're selling investments and that's a brokerage environment so if you hear the term stock broker that's that's a registered representative of a brokerage firm. Is it extent. safe
1: to say you were an employee
0: of that company in that situation? Absolutely. So, okay. I, in, in a, it's possible that somebody might not be. They might be like an independent contractor situation, but their role is they're they're compensated by
1: by selling. By so you were yeah. a car salesman selling cars.
0: Yeah, I mean you 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 might an indicator of this is someone might uh, I mean. This is years ago, but somebody might call, you know, you call up someone and say, "Hey, you know, uh, this is so and so from such and such firm, and uh, you know, we met at the such and such event last week, and I just want to give you a call because you, you were talking about whatever you had a CD come and due this week, and my firm has a, a another CD available that pays a higher rate. And if you have some money available that's come and due, maybe you ought to consider moving that over to us because we pay a higher rate." On our CD or our bond or whatever it is, it could be a stock, it could be a mutual fund, whatever it is. But you're basically trying to get somebody to invest money with you and get those commission dollars. So that's a registered representative, and they typically work with a brokerage firm that also, you know, their 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 primary form of compensation is going to be commissions from sales. Then you have on the other end of the spectrum, you have what's called a a different kind of firm that does that kind of thing where they might be doing investments they might they might be providing advice on investments they might also be doing financial planning our firm is like that so you have a registered investment advisor an RIA for short and and that describes the type of firm so you have a broker brokerage firm a broker dealer which was my first employer and then you have you know our current situation where it's a registered investment advisor and so that is a um, that is a business where the representative would be called an investment advisor representative. I A R. I A R. How many? How many? How many different acronyms can we come up with that use the letters R I and A?
1: Yeah, that's ridiculous.
0: And we have IRAs, we have RIA's and IARs. It's just it's, we've got all three. So it's it's. Uh,
1: that's what we're trying to cut, break yeah. through some of this jargon
0: and junk. It's just yeah, overwhelming. So. But an investment advisor representative works for a registered investment advisor, and th- you can generally identify these companies because their services are, uh, are are for a fee. It could be a flat fee. Somebody's going you're gonna hire somebody to do a financial plan for you, and you're gonna they're gonna they're gonna charge you their fee. They might charge you an hourly rate for their time. They might charge you a flat annual rate for whatever they do. They might charge you um, a percentage of your investment accounts as a fee on a regular basis. But generally, they're going to be pur- purely providing uh, advice in on financial planning or investments and services related to that advice for a fee. So they're not compensated for selling. They're just saying, hey, we're going to give you advice. You're going to pay us for it. It's, pretty, it's a little bit of a simpler arrangement. But those are the two different major platforms. You'll also sometimes see Folks saying they do financial advice and their primary form of compensation is they sell insurance products, and uh, and that's pretty easy to tell too. You know, if they might they might have a, a securities license as well, like a brokerage license. They might even have a fee based license. So, um, but generally, you want to know: Are you compensated primarily from selling insurance, selling investments, or providing advice for a fee? And uh, those are the three big areas out there um, the one thing I would just tell everybody you need to check out and ask until you understand exactly who you're dealing with how they get paid you can find how you know what what's their track record not track record for performance purposes but like what's their tr- what's their record from a compliance standpoint have they had a million complaints against them for lying to people um, have they had uh, judgments against them where they had to cough up money and, and settle a, a disagreement with clients over and over and over again. You can find that out online. So the SEC has a website for that. Um, the brokerage entity is called FINRA, F-I-N-R-A, and they have a system where you can also look people up and firms up and, and check them out. But you just kind of want to know. I mean, the word financial advisor doesn't mean the same thing the, all the time.
1: And not all of these people. When you're you're labeling these different people, they're not good or bad. It's just understanding who they are and what their role is. Yeah, Some people change. are employees of bigger firms and they might have a, a quota to sell product. Their role is to sell product. Others may have their selling advice and right. they get compensated differently. So it's not that, okay, I, I have to avoid all these types of people. It's so you have an understanding of who they are, how they're getting compensated, and what you're looking for.
0: Yeah, I mean it, and that's a good point. You and 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 what's happening more and more and more is you might have individuals that have all three capabilities under one roof. You know, like for
1: all know, three capabilities, what
0: like they 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 would they work on a fee. And they're licensed to sell insurance products like life insurance or long-term care insurance, and they have a brokerage license with a brokerage firm. And so, you know, you know, you and Tom are in that same situation where you you and Tom have your insurance licenses, and you and Tom both have brokerage licenses, and you and Tom are are fee own, you know have have your fee based license. So, it's you know in in, in our cases because there's been an evolution, so we've we've got some things that are kind of legacy assets that were taking care of those clients accounts like annuities for example or insurance products and we need to have those things even even if the the things that are moving forward are predominantly fall on the the, uh, advice side for a fee um the capability is still there so it doesn't it's not like you said it's not a good or bad thing it's just people should understand who they're dealing with and how they get compensated and you know just to i mean Honestly, most people you and I have met over a career, who on in all three of those areas, most people are very ethical, very honest people. Um, Absolutely. And, and and one of the reasons we're having this podcast and we're going to have guests on this podcast is we want to introduce some of those people um, who are the real people out doing this this kind of work and trying to help people because you know, like we said last episode hollywood's done a pretty awesome job of selling movie tickets and providing great stories about very dramatic events that related to our our business whether you're talking about uh, the big short or uh, wall street back in the 80s or uh, boiler room the wolf of wall street you know, sure. there's been movies made about bernie madoff i mean these are all like the worst case scenarios of dishonesty or just bad behavior in in the investment world um, but by no means, just like with airline crashes being reported more than fl- flights that land safely, you know, odds are most people are trying to do their best and, and to be honest about uh, providing that. And so we want to shine a light on some of those professionals. And that's not just the investment role, but that's also attorneys that, that do wills and trusts and real estate transactions. That's also CPAs and insurance agents. And there's just a lot of financial professionals out there that just kind of get a bad rap. If you get to know them a little bit, you find out that, you know, they're not a bunch of crooks all the time, the way you might think it was if you were watching movies. <laughs> but yeah, there's different types of financial, financial advisors, if you will, out there. So how are we doing? We're,
1: well, we can kind of jump into insurance a little bit if you wanted to. Talk there.
0: Yeah, we can let, let's we can keep it high level. We're 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 probably going a little longer than most people's weekly commute at this stage. It's been almost you know we're, we're running at an hour forty five here. So um, along the lines of planning, we have talked a lot about investing because that's just where a lot of the terminology lies in in the financial planning process. But uh, uh, in insurance, in particular, sometimes there's some confusion there. Um, and I'm gonna say really high level. Sure. We can wrap this up for folks. But when you're talking about life insurance, again, tools. These are tools for different purposes. So there's such a thing as permanent insurance. Means you buy the policy, it's good forever until you die. Lifetime, Lifetime. insurance. Right. And then you have insurance that's not permanent, also known as term insurance. It has a term. It might be for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever the term is, that's how long you're going to have that insurance and the premiums going to stay. The, the payments you're making for that insurance, the premiums, those are going to stay the same for 10 years or 20, whatever you sign up for. And so those are the two big types of life insurance. you got term insurance, which is for a temporary need, <laughs> and you have permanent insurance, which is for a very, very long-term need. Um, and then if you've heard terms like, whole insurance or universal insurance or uh, indexed universal and all the different crazy names for yep they're all permanent insurance
1: the question that comes up predominantly is what's the difference between term insurance and whole life insurance
0: yeah and whole's just a subset of permanent
1: right so the more accurate question is what's the difference between term and permanent insurance so whole life is a subcategory of permanent insurance right
0: and there's other terms like universal index variable universal whatever and we don't want to get into those today but they're just subsets of permanent insurance Mm. other types of insurance out there and it just it just if you die it pays out
1: right and so i guess with regards to those different permanent insurance policies the differences in those policies is how is the money inside the life insurance contract invested it's taking the risk right so a whole life policy is where you're paying your premiums the insurance company is investing the money and crediting a dividend to your policy right a universal life insurance policy is where you're putting money into the bucket and the insurance company is crediting you an interest rate similar to a savings account and that interest rate can change over time uh a variable life insurance policy is a life insurance policy where you're investing your premiums into different funds called subaccounts those are like mutual funds and that's so how you're the taking money. all the investment risk correct. yourself if you're doing that so, correct
0: yeah but um yeah that's a good i think it's a good high level i think we Sure, We've covered a lot of the basics today, and um, and there's just some simple things out there. I'm sure we've less left some things out, and people will let us know about them in all their...
1: Yeah, please reach you know. out to us and let us know if there are specific terms that you hear or jargon or acronyms, and we could try to help bring some clarity to your world to help you make better, more uh, decisions that you're confident with.
0: Yeah, you can find us on social media at Fierce Fiduciary um dan albert uh and brian beasley are all you know both of us are available on um, on social media as well you can find us uh, on instagram twitter anywhere out there and uh but but reach out to us on fierce fiduciary there's also an investment group on facebook called uh investing in financial planning for beginners um you can just reach out to us there and say hey i want to join the discussion there if you want to have a more interactive experience we're available there as well um but thanks everybody for listening um and there's a, a, a thank-out and recognition to uh, a client we mentioned before, Jack Sheesby, the late Jack Sheesby, who uh, was instrumental early in my career in uh, admonishing me to get simple. And uh, uh, hopefully we're, we're following through on some of the things that he had always asked us to do there. So
1: Yeah, I was fortunate um, enough to meet him, and uh, he was a great guy. Just a and- tremendous
0: individual. Um, but thanks, everybody, for uh, for participating in our experimental um, efforts in in learning how to podcast so um, really appreciate your feedback find us on social media and uh, thanks again for listening until next time